your Bibles and you would like to follow the lesson, and I hope you will, because this happens to be one of the most difficult and perplexing of all of the parables Jesus ever taught. This is in chapter 16. I don't know what that was. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that's right. Chapter 16. I really slipped up. What's the matter? I wonder how Chet, I mean David Brinkley and that bunch keep theirs on. They got some guy that do them. They get paid more than I do. This is chapter 16 of Luke. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summons each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And may I add, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. I had a little 
funny thing happened the other day when we were trying to figure out a title. Sermon titles are a terrible thing for me. Um, and uh, so we were looking at the title of the sermon. And I decided that since this man about whom Jesus is going to be telling us is guilty of fraud and conspiracy, and yet in some way is pointed out as an example that it would be a good thing to call it learning from a rogue. And then when the church secretary typed it out, it said, learning from a rogue, the minister. <laughs> I nearly changed it, but I thought it might be true. Uh, let's, let's learn from the rogue, both of them. Uh, now then, in the, 60, in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, we've been looking into some of the great stories that Jesus told. You remember that he told the story because he was being criticized by the Pharisees in that he actually rejoiced, and that's the key word, rejoiced over the fact that publicans and sinners who were despised by the Pharisees uh, were being received by him and many of them were being converted and changed. They did not wish them to be converted, the scribes and Pharisees, and so they were angry at Jesus that he should show them his love. And Jesus, in an effort to teach them, told them the three stories, uh, the story about the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the two lost boys. Now, in the story about the prodigal son, the word prodigal means a wastrel, someone who wastes up. And so it's easy to make the transition into the next parable, which occurs in Luke chapter 16. And he was also saying to the disciples, I think he was continuing along in this vein, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. We do not use that word much anymore. We speak about stewardesses on airlines, and the Methodist church has stewards instead of deacons. Uh, and I think labor unions also have stewards, but outside of that I don't hear much about it. But a steward is uh, one who has a, the responsibility over a ward. And uh, he acts in uh, stead of his master. He has a great responsibility. One of the best biblical examples of a steward is that Old Testament account of Joseph, who was a steward in Potiphar's household. And you remember that all of the things that Potiphar, this great personage in, person in Egypt, everything that he had was under Joseph's hand. And you remember when Joseph was tempted to sin, he said, I will not sin against God, because you don't sin against man without sinning against God. I will not sin against God, nor against my master, because he has trusted me and left everything under my responsibility. And so he said to Potiphar's wife when she tempted him, I will not be seduced by you, nor will I do anything dishonorable to my God and to my master. So he was a faithful steward. Now here is a steward who is not faithful. There was a steward who was report, who, whose master found out that he was squandering his possessions. Uh, we don't know what he was doing, whether he was playing the stock market on the side or, or what, but anyway, he was squandering the possessions. And so this master calls the steward in to give an account. And he says to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Well, now he already told him he was going to fire him. And he said, give me an account of your stewardship. 
So that meant he had a little time. And so that's one of the points that you wish to draw from this lesson. This shrewd but crooked steward acts very quickly. The first thing he does is think ahead. This is one of the things that we in the United States of America have not done, which has got us into this wretched energy crisis, so that a 10th rate, 10 horn dictator uh, in Iran uh, can hold hostage uh, the people in the American embassy uh, because we have allowed ourselves to become dependent upon foreign oil. We did not think ahead even when 1973 uh, told us that crisis would be impending and coming. And there are still harder lessons yet that we'll learn before this thing is over with. That we cannot squander and waste energy as we have in the past. And so we're beginning to learn this lesson and we'll learn it even in harsher uh, days and the ways ahead. So this man uh, here uh, has wasted the goods and uh, uh, yet he has to think ahead because he's being fired, what's going to happen to him? What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. He's at that terrible age to get fired. Uh, when uh, he is not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So what's he going to do? I know what I shall do, he says so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. So he enters into a, a little judicious blackmail and fraud. He summons each one of his master's debtors, and he began to say to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write out fifty. And you remember me later on. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write down 80, and you remember me later on. And his master, now his, this, is G, this is not Jesus, but this is this man's master. His master prays the unrighteous steward. Now it makes me think that his master must have been something of a shrewd operator himself, because he thought, Man, a sharp rascal. He foxed me. <laughs> Isn't he clever? Uh, I, I blew it when I gave him the opportunity to have the time to think ahead. And look what he did with the time. He went out and feathered his nest so that he would have people that look out for him later. He, he, he outsharped me. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind uh, than the sons of light. Now, what's Jesus teaching us from this? Certainly, he is not teaching us dishonesty. We know better than that. He is teaching us that there are people in the world uh, who make better use of their worldly opportunities than we who are supposed to have imperishable treasures make of our use of spreading the gospel and living the gospel and working for the things that last forever. Just this past week, my heart has been deeply stirred because I've been studying with the prayer meeting group the second chapter of Acts. And if you remember in the second chapter of the book of Acts and the tremendous afterglow of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came 
And Peter preached that great sermon at Pentecost. Uh, some of the scholars that I read awakened my thinking to something. And that is that John Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Mark, was close to Peter. And what Mark must have written down was what Peter told him about the ministry of Jesus. And Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and who also writes the book of Acts, and who is writing this account in Acts, has compressed into a very short capsule a version of the sermon that Peter gave at Pentecost. We often think that sermon is long when we read that passage in Scripture because there are over 40 verses in the second chapter of Acts and most of it is taken up with Peter's sermon. But in reality, what Luke has done is to capsule what must have taken three hours to deliver into a few uh, short minutes. He begins to describe the prophecies from Joel and the prophecies from the book of Psalms predicting the coming Messiah and how that Jesus of Nazareth fits all of this puzzle together. And then he begins to tell about the deeds and the words of Jesus. Never get into that group of people who tell you that the deeds of Jesus, his miracles, are not important. But what are important are his teachings, the beautiful Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, baloney, his, his, his deeds authenticate his words. That's why the miracles were wrought, to show you that his words are true and that you are to take them. And so that's exactly what Peter emphasized. And it must have taken him three hours to go through the life and the ministry of Jesus than to tell about his death and his resurrection from the dead, his victory over death and the fact that the promise of God is now open to you Gentiles. Now, I've told you this in a few moments because my heart was stirred when I read that a great Shakespearean actor from Great Britain, whose name is Alex McEwen, had memorized the entire gospel according to Mark. And that's quite a feat. And I began to think, now here is Alex McEwen, who is a Shakespearean actor not a preacher, who does not even claim to be a Christian. And yet, because he wishes to do something dramatic, he memorizes all of the gospel according to Mark. And I can't even remember ever sitting down one time and reading all the way through the gospel of Mark at one sitting, just to see what the impact would be. The children of this world are wiser than the children of light. We need ourselves to be rebuked by that. By the way, let me go on since I've mentioned this again because someone wanted me to illustrate this. Alex McEwen spent two and a half hours on stage doing this and it's been a smashing hit on Broadway with no props, no other actors, and that's the ultimate in an actor's performance to be able to hold an audience spellbound. Uh, by his voice, he took the King James Version of the Gospel according to Mark he did not omit, he did not add one single word. And he gives the whole thing in a little over two and a half hours. And he has held audiences on the edge of their seat so that they can see the impact of what the church snores through Sunday by Sunday. And this to me is a rebuke. 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to be exciting and powerful. When someone from Time magazine uh, asked him the question, are you a Christian, the, the answer was interesting, and I, I have it written here, I don't think so, but I would be very flattered, he said, if someone thought I was. And then he added to the interviewers from the New Yorker magazine, he was, uh, he was cited in two magazines, I don't know whether I'm a Christian, but I'll tell you one thing, I believe that everything Mark said happened. Alec McCune, by spending six months memorizing the gospel according to Mark, became convinced of the truth of the gospel, even though he says he has not been willing to admit to the Lordship of Christ. So those of us who do admit to the Lordship of Christ ought to be shamed into reading our Gospels. Here there are booklets to assist our families in devotion and the reading of the Bible so that we gain insights in how we may live day by day the truths of the Gospel. Let us learn from the people of the world to make good use of the opportunity that we have to think ahead and to use quickly our opportunities uh, that exist for us. This is a tremendous thing that we need to think about. When you stop to think about football, Chuck Noll, the coach of the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, uh, this, this man is always thinking about how he's going to win the next ball game. And if people will do this for a crown that's fading away, that's imperishable, when two weeks after the ball game, someone won't even be able to tell you what the score was. Why don't we put more effort into the things that last for eternity? We read avidly the sports page and boringly the records of the gospel. We need to, to learn from the people of this world. So Jesus is telling us here, think ahead. Think ahead and learn. And when we think ahead, we have to remember that time is the element that is involved here. I have a little poem that I put in my Bible that says, When I was a child, I laughed and wept, and time crept. When I was a youth, I dreamed and talked, and time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I older grew, time flew. Soon I shall find, while traveling on, that time is gone. One of the terrifying things about that horrible situation which exists in Cambodia is that time is of the essence to get the necessary relief to the people who are starving, to the little children by the hundreds of thousands whose brains will be damaged if they do not receive nourishment. I love what Father Hesburgh, who was chairman of the uh, Civil Rights Commission, said when he met with a group of senators and went, uh, I believe, to Bangkok to try to figure out the Thai government refused and, and the Cambodian government rather refused to allow uh, 
trucks to go down the road who could distribute the food more quickly. And Father Hesburgh, the president of Notre Dame, said, I would be willing to go in a truck with a flag flying even though it means I get shot rather than to sit by and do nothing and see another Holocaust take place. And our good Catholic brother has taught us much by what he has said then. So time is, of course, of the essence there. And Jesus is saying here and teaching us from this. Uh, by the way, here you find our Lord Jesus doing an interesting thing. He teaches us how, how a, a bad man, how you can learn a good thing from a bad man. Most of the time we only point out his badness but, but won't learn uh, from him. But Jesus wants us to learn something from him here. And uh, that's important for us to remember. Now, secondly, of course, you always have to deal, uh, when you come to this, with money. There's an old saying that money talks. And Richard Armour has a funny little quip that says, all it ever said to me was goodbye. And I suppose that most of us feel that way. And in a congregation such as this, uh, we wonder about money. Our problem is not what to do with it, but how to get more of it. And yet we do have some, and we do have a responsibility for which we will have to give a reckoning, as this stewardship here teaches us, that one day the auditors will come in, the holy auditor, God, and he will look at the books, and he will want to know what we have done with what he has entrusted to us. If we really believe that what we've said in the gospel is true, what have we done to demonstrate the reality of our belief? What sort of sacrifices have we made in order to show that? It's important for us to remember it. Um, <laughs> I remember reading uh, some young man who asked a, a young lady to marry him and uh, the young man asked her this question. He said, uh, do, you, uh, do you really think that you could live on my income? And she answered, yes, I could live on your income, but what would you live on? <laughs> uh, he, he's speaking, uh, that, that's the problem that most of us do. Uh, we think about it that way. But now what are we going to do with our money? John Wesley was once preaching a stewardship sermon. And John Wesley was a tremendous saint. Uh, he even wanted the auditors to know how much he had to such extent that I think he had it carved on his tombstone how much he had left uh, at the end of his ministry. Uh, he was a, a tremendous saint and a very uh, careful man with money. Uh, John Wesley was preaching a stewardship sermon and he said about money, get all the money you can. And there was a canny Scotsman and his buddy who were standing there, and he punched him, and he said, say, he's, he's pretty good. <laughs> and then Wesley said, secondly, keep all you possibly can. And the other one said, oh, that's, that's fine. Isn't that fine? And then John Wesley said, then give all away you can. And then uh, they both said, well, he spoiled everything now. 
<laughs> That's the kind of unpopular Christianity is. Uh, how much shall we give? How much can we give? This is what we need to think about here. And what are we doing with it? And how far will it go? Uh, I've often told you about the lady... I can remember two ladies who had a great influence upon me when I was a very young boy in high school and then in the first years of college. I've often told the story of how a Sunday school teacher that I had in the old First Presbyterian Church that I attended, a very plain person, but a very good Christian, she knew that I wanted to go to college and that uh, I had played football for my first year, and then I was going away to another school. And I'll never forget her coming by my house to tell me goodbye and handing me a little envelope with my name on it with the instructions, do not open this until you're 24 hours away from town. And so I was hitchhiking 400 and something miles to go off to school. And out on the side of the road, standing out there, hitchhiking with my suitcases, trying to hitchhike across Texas is a right considerable job. And uh, I, I remember uh, how when the trucks would pass me in the cars, I'd feel a little sad. And finally, I figured the 24 hours were up and I could honestly open the envelope and I opened it up. And there were two brand new $20 bills in that envelope. I don't think I've ever felt so rich uh, before or since. Uh, those two $20 bills looked enormous to me. And I remember folding them up and putting them in the watch pocket of my blue jeans and thinking how happy I felt <laughs> now that I had uh, this money and that someone trusted me and someone wanted to help me and someone assisted me. And there were others who assisted me too uh, along the way. And you'll find that people do this. And it's a good investment a good investment to assist young people through college. I think every year about the Moorhead Scholarship, and Mr. Moorhead is probably more widely remembered than many of the people who have built buildings uh, because of his scholarship, and it's certainly true of Cecil Rhodes, who established the Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, people are interested in, in identifying with uh, people and assisting them and helping them. Uh, only yesterday, someone was speaking of... of um, being in a home where a college president was present. And uh, when he walked out of the room, one of the guests in the home said uh, uh, to him, you see this man, I remember when he was a very poor boy and didn't have enough money to go to school. And uh, I knew that he had the capability of learning, and I had the joy of paying his way through college. And that's the best investment I ever made. Now he's the president of college. And uh, he had assisted him in that way. And so we are stewards of time. We are stewards of money. And we need to use that money prayerfully. And we've come to that time of the year where we talk about it in a way that will bring honor to Jesus Christ. So this rogue, uh, he used his master's money uh, in a crooked, shrewd way and he took advantage of the foresight and the time that was involved, and he acted promptly. And we need to have forethought, too. And then 
Let me go on about stewardship because that's really what this whole story is going to be about. Because when we get to the conclusion of it, Jesus is going to say that no man can serve two masters. And that means that he must be master over all of us. And that's the talents of which we possess. Uh, what our talents will be used for, some in music, some in teaching, some in the arts of healing, uh, some in educating. I've been greatly impressed with Mr. Chai's progress in learning English. And uh, when Virginia Buchanan and others uh, go and patiently teach him and will not allow some of the rest of us to corrupt him by using pidgin English, uh, they want him to learn uh, to speak the language. Uh, this is a good thing. This is using a talent and giving someone a priceless gift, uh, a, a tremendous gift that will open all kinds of new doors to them, a, a great golden key. Um, so that talent is being used that way. Whether our talents are small or great, God gives us the talents. I know I'm never going to be any famous great preacher, and that doesn't matter. I'll be held accountable for my preaching right here in Montreat and for the people that I have the opportunity to minister to. And that's, that's enough to make me shake in my boots when I realize that I have to give an accounting for that in the presentation of the truth of the gospel and in calling people to that responsibility. I think about friendships. And uh, what we need to do is stewardship of friends. I have a buddy, Bill Griffin. You all have heard me talk about him so much. Griffin, when he's getting ready to go hunting, he says, we're going to hunt on this man's place. He said, you know, I've got friends I haven't even used. <laughs> and uh, you have friends. Well, he, he is quipping, of course. But uh, uh, there are friendships that we can establish. And uh, Jesus said, make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. By that, he meant use money to a good purpose. Use it so it'll go on down the road accomplishing good things. Old Mother Moss that I talked about a while ago, uh, one of those two ladies who helped me with my college education. She's very careful. She wouldn't give me any money. She'd loan me money and make me pay every penny of it back. Uh, but she wanted me to go through school and she wanted to teach me and made a great impression for good upon me about this. I'll never forget her telling one time of how in El Paso, Texas, uh, there was a sweet Methodist minister and his wife who in the Depression had little me Mexican children left at their doorsteps, and they had to uh, form an orphanage to take care of these children, and they did not have enough money. They needed a bigger building, and they prayed that God would show them how to get the building, and they asked the realtor where they could find uh, uh, the owner of this building, and he said, the owner is in the city of Chicago, and I don't know that you can do anything with him or not. And so they said, well, we've got so many kids, we've got to move quickly, and we've got to have another building. And so they sent the man a telegram. And, and in the telegram, they said to him uh, what their needs were to establish this orphanage for these homeless Mexican children. And they said, we know that the Depression is here, and we know that we will work hard to try to pay you for the, for the building. But the only collateral we can offer you is John 3.16. Well, they happened to strike the right note. They got a telegram right back from the man that said, John 3.16 is good enough for me. I'm sending the deed to the building. <laughs> and it shows you uh, how that money 
uh, is used to go on into the future and to help others. Uh, someone, Charlie Erdman, was telling about a little girl um, who was just a child. Her brother was a famous doctor up in Canada doing his residency at that time, and his little sister came into the hospital. And uh, before she succumbed to a, the fatal illness that she had, she said to her brother, her big brother, who was the doctor, she said, I have 46 cents, 42 cents, and I want you to take this 42 cents and use it to build a hospital to take care of little children uh, who have no one to look after them. And her brother took that 42 cents, and he did build a hospital in India by telling that story over and over again of that little girl and the 42 cents that she had given and you see that went on and on and on into the future, extending it. And so we use our talents, we use our money, we use these friendships that we have. <laughs> Somebody was telling me yesterday about a little boy that um, and mother was annoyed with him. So she said, Johnny, go out and play with your friends. And he said, I don't have any friends. I just have one and I hate him. And <laughs> there are some people who can make friends easier than other people. Uh, and we have to remember that. So we want to use our, our friendship for the Lord and to see to it that uh, all that we have is under him as the uh, master of all of our possessions and all of our relationships. This is the one thing we must not lose sight of. Uh, could I, in closing, repeat a story which I've told before, but which has fascinated me because it happens to be a true story and right now there are a lot of um, accounts coming out about Billy Graham and other evangelists and I cut out of a paper a few years ago the story of a um, a man in Chicago for the Chicago newspaper who had um, decided that he would do a story on a very famous evangelist who was very old at that time whose name was Gypsy Smith. Some of you friends here will know of Gypsy Smith and some perhaps have heard him. He was a tremendous preacher and greatly gifted and greatly used by God. Uh, that's a whole story in itself, how God moved into that pitiful little pagan gypsy uh, tent and saved that little family and used one to be such a marvelous preacher of his grace. Well, when Gypsy Smith was almost 90, uh, in the city of Chicago, he was visited by a reporter. And uh, this reporter uh, came for the interview, and they sat down and began to talk. And as the reporter asked leading questions of the old evangelist, Gypsy Smith told how on one occasion, in one of the sordid red-light districts of Chicago. Two hundred prostitutes had marched into the meeting where he was preaching. And Gypsy Smith had preached to them a sermon on the love of God and of how our sins might be as scarlet, but that they could be made as white as snow, and how that Christ could bring forgiveness and God would remember our sins against us no more. And as he began to tell that story, tears came in Gypsy Smith's eyes. And the reporter himself wrote 
when he was writing up the article that he could feel himself being moved by the emotion and intensity of the old preacher. And now this is what he said. He said, mistiness suddenly came into my eyes and my hands began to tremble. And I almost asked him the question, what must I do to be saved? But then I remembered that I was not there to be converted, that I was a reporter coming for a story, and that I had a deadline to meet and an editor waiting to read what I'd write. And so I thrust aside that moment and went back to the typewriter. I swear that ten more minutes, ten more minutes and he would have had me. Think of that. His story meant more to him than his relationship to God or Christ. He did not take advantage of the opportunity that was given to him. But we can take advantage of the opportunity that he has given to us. And we can surrender our lives to him. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you can accept him this morning by learning from this parable which we have talked about in these illustrations which have been spoken. Now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let me say this. No man can serve two masters is the way Jesus concluded this. Now who is your master? You have to make a decision. And if you've never made that decision, you could have made it while we were singing, or you can make it after we go out today, or you can make it right now. You can face the fact that we're accountable. We're accountable because we've heard the gospel. You can allow Jesus to come into your life and to take over. You can follow with me as I make this prayer for us all, and if it suits your case, then you pray it with me. Lord Jesus, I invite you to come into my heart, to come into my life, I need direction. I am willing to admit I am a sinner, that I don't understand everything about myself or everything about you. But I'm willing in simple trust to repent of my sin and to place my life in your hands. Thank you for your forgiveness. Get me up and get me going. Help me to bend every bit of my energy to your service. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.